1: The theft of a fleet, the firebombing of a city, the deliberate targeting of a civilian population. These sound like something that you might expect from a World War II period drama, but they aren't. In 1807, the British arrived in Copenhagen contemplating theft and arson. Their goal? To stop the Danish fleet from falling into Napoleon's hands. What followed was little short of what today would be called a war crime. In a two-parter that is unashamedly awkward listening, for my Anglophile listeners, Gareth Glover joins me to talk about how and why the British firebombed Copenhagen, up next on the Napoleonic Wars pod. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod, where today I have one of the gods of Napoleonic history in the room. Look, folks, the guest may be shaking their head, but you know the drill by now. If I don't big up my guests, then I'm doing something wrong. But frankly, I have somebody in the house tonight who barely needs an introduction. Gareth Glover has made a name for himself as the Wizard of Waterloo the master of the memoir um the god of napoleonic myth busting i've run out of alliterative titles at this point because i'm, I'm not so
2: glad good. you've run out
1: <laughs> are, are you feeling awkward yet
2: <laughs> yes very <laughs> yeah um
1: well welcome to the show because th- this is part of the norm uh if you don't know Gareth assorted i've forgotten how many books he's published by now um go check out his website it's like it's well over 100 it's probably like yeah
2: 118 i think isn't it
1: only 118 yeah yeah i've been down?
2: yeah i know i've been taking a rest
1: no it's not good enough you need to, you need to produce them faster um i mean this guy probably has actually that might not quite be the case but you've got almost as many books as i have podcast episodes on this show so you're doing quite well <laughs> um yeah folks this is the guy who produced uh, Waterloo Myth versus Reality which is one of the go-to reads on Waterloo um if you want a memoir from this period or an extract from a letter search for Gareth Glover's various compendiums of sources first because that's your best bet in terms of finding them but we're not talking about any of that today instead we're going to do Copenhagen we might actually do both copenhagens but we're not going to do first copenhagen this time i'm going to do second copenhagen as i call it this time the contra well i'm not sure if the first one's controversial the second one is definitely controversial and we'll get to that in a bit uh but i'm really looking forward to this a campaign that i think only really gets a little bit of attention because bernard cornwall and sharp and it's one of those that people do like to sort of Pretend it didn't happen because burning of cities really isn't sort of the sort of thing that we like to shout about. Doesn't kind of cast us in the best light. Um Gareth, great to have you. How are you doing?
2: Thank you. Yes, I'm doing fine. Thank you.
1: Hopefully you've recovered from the embarrassment of the introduction. Um Yeah, I we... just I just
2: tend to ignore all that stuff, i got to be honest. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you had the opportunity, I'm sure you'd edit it out, but this is the power <laughs> that I, I wield. Um and it has gone to my head, people, if you hadn't realized already. So where to start? Well, I'm going to be predictable and boring and do it chronologically because that's the logical thing to do on this mm-hmm. one. Um, starting with the origins, this is complicated because as I said at the start this is second Copenhagen, we'll do an episode on first Copenhagen in due course and Nelson, mm-hmm. the, the, i failed to see the signal and all of that, that all come another day people um, but how do we reach a point where the British are going to war with the Danes again? Um, because we did it once and then we patched things up and then we decided that's not enough um, and I I think we will probably get to this later but I feel like this was whilst there's a strategic rationale behind this there's also a sense that this was a dumb move that, that shouldn't have perhaps been taken and, and we'll get there that, that's part of the fun of it but how, how do we get to this point where the decision is made we're going to go and annoy the danes yet again
2: okay well the the first thing without going into 1801 particularly but just to say that 1801 did not destroy the main uh, danish fleet they were kept out of the fighting uh, and therefore were actually still a potential threat to whoever Um, now britain didn't have a particular issue with the, uh, the the baltic unless Somebody messed around with their trade in getting masts and all the rest of it from which keeping their navy afloat. Um, so really, there, there wasn't a particular issue when 1801 came to an end, and trade continued, and life was relatively amicable, uh, with the Danes. Um, but then things start to change in 1807. Um, the first bit is that. The Russians and the French eventually come together, uh, and actually at Tilsit, et etc, and agree effectively uh, to secretly carve up Europe between themselves. Um, uh, this is Napoleon at this stage, pretending to be friendly with the Russians. He changes that in a few years' time. Um, but there are immediately concerns in Britain. Because now you've got the two main protagonists in Europe on the same side. Um, the British start worrying uh, about what this deal means. And there are lots of nasty little rumors that start appearing that there are secret conventions within it uh, that Russia will turn a blind eye to Napoleon hoovering up the uh, sort of the other little fleets that are still not his around europe in the neutral the supposedly neutral countries uh portugal is one uh, sweden is another although sweden's not so easy to get at because he's got across the sea there uh and then obviously you've got denmark itself uh, denmark and portugal particularly vulnerable because they have uh access they, you know the french can get access to them by the land and therefore they can march an army there and take over the navies so the British are seriously concerned about it um there is obviously some truth in in this sort of these rumors because certainly not soon after the the French do march across Spain with the particular aim of taking Portugal but also this Portuguese fleet um now with regard to the Danes, it was a little bit more complicated. The Danes had a reasonably strong army uh and they had placed that army right on the border uh, at the top of germany and holstein facing marshal macdonald's french army that was sitting around the area of hamburg and potentially threatening to march into into, um, into denmark so the danes are looking at that side of things The Brits are hearing rumours that, in fact, this French army is going to march in and take the fleet in the near future. Uh, um, And there are rumours of an expedition using the Danish fleet against Ireland. Now, using McDonald's troops, presumably, and probably Danish troops. Now, there is... Virtually no evidence for that at all. In fact, I can almost certainly say to you, it's a load of baloney. Uh, it has no basis, in fact, of, any, of anything I can find at all. But clearly it meant that the British were in that situation of thinking, well, OK, we have eradicated to an extent the French and Spanish armies, sorry, navies in 1805. Napoleon is going to take a decade or more to be able to bring his fleet up to a standard where they can actually face the royal navy again but a very quick way of actually improving the french navy is to hoover up all these other these other navies uh and potentially within a very short period be in 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 a position to start challenging the royal navy again so the royal navy uh fears this the british government fear this because clearly the royal navy is the thing that stops uh any form of invasion of britain and is keeping us afloat should we say during the wars um and it's it's all of that that causes the whole situation
1: immediately got a ton of questions which is not a good start for the prospect of a concise podcast is it um folks if this ends up being a two-parter i'm not going to pretend that i'm sorry uh first up what are we talking about in terms of size here for the danish fleet i have a figure of something like 16 in my head but that may just be made up
2: yeah there is well um there were altogether 18 line of battleships uh 16 of which were in uh, copenhagen the other two were not there when the british army arrived that's why there was 18 uh there were also 11 frigates there were also about another uh 14 if i remember uh, sort of um brigs etc plus about 28 or 30 uh gunboats as well which carried a couple of cannon so it was a sizable navy in fact as, as, as i've mentioned in the book in a sense um you know denmark was a very small country at this stage but it was actually having a, had a navy that put it in the top five basically of europe Uh, which is a a sizable feat Uh, and and they certainly put money into it
1: so more than enough to um, at least begin to i'm trying to think what the the french spanish losses are at trafalgar but basically this certainly helps to to deal with that whole but where are we at in terms of the the legacy of trafalgar um, the the other fleets that france has at its disposal versus british naval muscle and all the rest of it
2: right well i haven't got all these figures exactly in my head but let me put it this way the british are obviously uh have got the best part of a thousand ships in the royal navy but clearly not that many line of battleships it's a hundred and so um the french have still got dotted around different locations up to about 50 um they've also got now potentially the russian fleet can join if they agree to actually work together um there is also a small fleet of around about 10 or so uh line in portugal there are the 18, up to 18 in uh, uh, the sort of danish waters and potentially if they could get across and take the swedish fleet as well which is another 15 or so um uh, you know you're starting to sort of talk about similar numbers of line of battleships to what the Royal Navy can put up.
1: Okay, so there is a, a genuine threat here. And and how is the Navy faring with the agreements in 1807 that inevitably affect trade with the Baltic? That will obviously be a continued question mark as, as we kind of look at the legacies of yeah. yeah. But, but the Baltic matters, right? And this is what I think often gets missed when people think about strategy. They, they think about the low countries because of proximity. Mm-hmm. They think about Gibraltar. What they tend to miss is because of what you've mentioned already, because of the timber yeah, um, and possibly the hemp that's coming. Yeah, from... hemp's the other
2: one. I was going to say, uh, I didn't mention it earlier, but hemp's the other one, uh, which obviously is used for corking and everything else on the ships uh, and obviously even, for even turning into ropes, etc. cetera. Um, so as far as the Navy is concerned, when the Baltic suddenly becomes potentially unavailable, um, it sends real alarm signals through the system um yes they do manage to find some other uh, alternative supplies by going into into the Mediterranean etc and getting stores uh, supplies to come in that way and thankfully uh the Russian situation doesn't actually go too well and it's not that long before the Russians are actually retrading with us again uh so it isn't a huge problem uh, and obviously there, there's also stuff coming from Norway and Sweden as well so You know, the whole area, although as far as the British Navy was concerned, for the last hundred years or so, it'd been an absolute backwater. Nobody had been threatening their supplies. So therefore, they really didn't go in there very much. Uh, But clearly, the supplies were absolutely essential. And once that was under threat, they really felt they had to do something about it. And certainly, the British government were doing exactly the same thing.
1: Yeah, and you can understand why. Um, the other thing to bear in mind, folks, is that what is the navy having to do post Trafalgar? A lot of bro- excuse me, let me let me try and wrap my tongue around that. A lot of blockade duty, which takes its toll on ships mm-hmm. in a massive way. Um, I remember sitting down with Sam Jolly a long time back and talking mm-hmm. about the the British strategies and the toll that it was taking on those warships. Economically, you've yes. got huge amounts of damage that get wrought on, on these ships they then have to go back they have to be refitted so you might sort of sit back and think oh well does it really matter that they can't get you know many masts mm. but actually yes it does because yeah. these ships are taking a battering even though they're not involved in engagements
2: oh yeah 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 they're, they're regularly having to re- replace uh fixtures and fittings throughout Tuesday including the masts. um I, as I would say one thing on that is that. Um, The other side of the coin is that navies are only as good as if they're at sea and get lots of experience. So the one thing about the British being at sea so much was actually providing huge amounts of experience for their for the sailors and the captains and everybody else, um, which in itself shows when they then come up against fleets that are not getting to sea very often for example at trafalgar <laughs> i will not get into the whole trafalgar discussion now but you know but clearly uh you know there are pros and cons in all these things and certainly the big pro was the fact that your uh the british fleets at that time were very used to handling ships in the in all weathers mm-hmm.
1: absolutely and and indeed this is part of the reason why what happens in the war of 1812 comes as quite such a slap in the face. But again, that's a whole mm. other conversation for another time. <laughs> um, So back to the original list of questions that, mm. that we, we planned for this one, um, a out of, we're now on one a folks out of the list of, I don't know, a lot Um, nine. So th- this is going to take a while uh, to go back to the the situation with the Danes. You can understand the rationale. I kind of said this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is that obvious danger. If Napoleon invades, it's Napoleon. This is the guy who's just wiped the floor with the other European armies. If he starts invading Denmark with the best will in the world, to my Danish listeners, that would have been a very one-sided confrontation. Mm-hmm. So you can understand the idea of, actually, if we make sure that Napoleon's not going to have this juicy prize of the Danish Navy anymore... Um, We can make sure that he isn't able to use it for his own strategic benefit. So on purely strategy grounds, that makes sense. The question mark, therefore, is, is there a diplomatic solution to this problem? When you're turning around to a sovereign nation and going, we don't think you can be trusted with your own navy anymore. Why don't you put it under our custody? Now, granted, it's not a conversation that's likely to go well. Mm. Um, But do you think there was a diplomatic solution? Um that was feasible with all this. And equally, did the Danes have a contingency on what they were going to do with their navy if it looked like it was going to fall into Napoleon's hands?
2: Well, let me, I think you look you have to look at this on both sides. Um, the first side is you have to try to understand how Denmark was trying to walk a tightrope. Uh, they had been walking a tightrope for the last hundred and odd years, uh, because obviously there have been numerous wars throughout Europe and they had developed a system diplomatic system of basically agreeing with everybody promising everybody everything and then doing nothing to any of them and actually just carrying on trading with them all and actually making sure that they they make a huge profit out of sort of supplying them all etc but never actually taking sides They sort of keep sort of down the middle, um, which is obviously a clearly a very difficult thing to do. Um, But the danger is that the Danes had, had actually got really quite arrogant about this. They actually believed they'd actually discovered a new way of diplomacy and that they could do this forever in sort of promising everybody everything and nobody eventually would take them to task. Well, unfortunately, I think... By 1807 with napoleon they'd met somebody that was going to take them to task uh and basically they were in a situation where they were going to they were running out of road i think and they had to go into one camp or another at some stage but but you have to understand in 1807, though denmark did not see that they were at the end of the road uh it was the other countries britain and sort of france who were saying no so you have to choose one way or the other. Um, so the date so from the Danish side it's a case of right we'll just keep doing what we've always done we'll 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 just promise both sides everything and do nothing yet yeah? and we'll just and they'll leave us alone we're, t- we're not important enough um but from the other side you have the Brits who are now saying we're not happy that this fleet is very much under threat from Napoleon uh and we know that the Danes can't stop him getting if he wants it. And on the other side, Napoleon uh, ensuring that you know that the the Danes come into his uh, sort of his area where he actually controls all everything that goes on. Basically, he wants to have the entire continent of Europe within his control, so that he can you know effectively destroy the economy of Britain by by sort of imposing his his uh, you know sort of his coastal defenses on ensuring that they can't trade with anybody that's the that's the point behind it um and also as i said using this this fleet so they are basically in a rock between a rock and a hard place uh the danes cannot win uh and obviously both sides want to win now the brits obviously do get there a little bit faster than Napoleon. Napoleon is obviously looking at everything across the continent. He's had to deal with Russia and they do steal a march on him slightly by sending diplomats across and starting to make um, offers like let us have the fleet in Britain and we'll keep it safe for you. And we promise to give it back at the end of the war or we'll buy it off. You just sell us your fleet or we'll rent it off you. Yeah. They were trying everything under the sun. Yep. To say to the Danes, just give us the fleet over here. So it can't be used against us. And we will do whatever you want in whatever, you know, whatever way it will happen. Obviously for the Danes, it was their pride and joy. There was no way the Danes were going to give up their fleet. Um, And again, it's, it's this constant situation. This whole story is, uh, that neither side want to compromise from this their, their position and you know they can't see the writing on the wall basically i think any of them uh and it's it's just it's it's a story that you just can see it happening each section you just it's, it's so obvious what's going to happen i, I know i'm looking with hindsight but yeah you know, even then i think a lot of people were talking about it was there was this inevitability about it um and the only other thing I'd like to bring into it is I think it's very similar to the dilemma that Churchill had with, with regards to Vichy France's navy in 1940 and, and 41 and, and El Kabir, uh, where he ends up eventually attacking that fleet to stop it being used by the Germans. Now, I mean, obviously... We get into the whole thing you know the French people will say today you know it was it was separate it was never going to be part of the German uh fleet but you know uh, uh, Churchill was looking exactly the same situation is can I dare allow it to be taken if they do take it uh I'm not saying it's right what's right or wrong but I can understand the logic of that dis- that that sort of argument
1: absolutely yeah Moselle Cabert' is a really good really effective point of comparison as you say the rationale is fundamentally identical right Hmm. Um, there is a navy it's going to go into the hands of my opponent if I don't do something Um, difficult choice to be made Um, yes sometimes you have to set morals aside in in times of war Um, I'm also marveling well I don't know why I'm marveling at the fact that the the British solution to this is just can we buy it This is the nation that bankrolls the armies of Europe. Um, And I'm surprised that their solution is, look, if we throw money at you, does this make the problem go away? Um, It's it's a very British government in the early Napoleonic era, well, mid-Napoleonic era kind of way of doing things, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So a decision gets made um, to, to send this operation in. Yeah. I I guess before we look at who's in charge and and why those people are in charge, I'm interested in how that decision gets made because secrecy matters Mm. at this point and yet there is going to be a moral brouhaha potentially Mm. about this, especially if it goes wrong Um, Mm -hmm. and as we know over the course of the entirety of the Napoleonic era Britain doesn't always have the greatest uh, record when it comes to expeditions. Some go rather well others not so heads are going to be on the line with this so how do they make a decision that we're going to go take this we're just going to
0: steal it hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role
2: Many elements to it, which it gets quite complicated, I gotta be honest. Um, but there are a lot of false reports about the Danish fleet being made ready for sea, etc. Um, now they, they are demonstrably false in every sense. Uh, they only kept, sent a couple of ships to sea every year, the rest just kept in mothballs, basically waiting for something to happen. But that starts to feed the British fear of this supposed threat to ireland yep is the fact that these ships are getting ready for sea um they therefore can also see mcdonald's army right on this on the actual border they think there's not a lot of time to do anything about this they've got to come to a conclusion quite quickly um so although it bounces around a bit with them sort of deciding whether we're going to do it or not or you know is this going too far i mean there's a lot of moral sort of um sort of head scratching and sort of trying to sort out what's right to do but it does come to a head very quickly um they know they don't have a lot of time and you know they are forced into that situation of you either make a decision or likely give it a month or more and there won't be a navy to actually try and take anyway it'll be, it'll be in napoleon's hands um And the great thing for them that helped them a little bit was that obviously Russia had been fighting against Napoleon very recently. And as part of that, Britain had been playing his usual thing of let's let's invent another expedition and go and give them a hand, uh, which usually went completely wrongly. Um, And they had started planning to send a, a number of troops to Germany to actually land uh, and sort of support the russians in their fight in germany well those troops were on standby the naval ships that were going to, supp- to take them were on standby so you uh, you were, had quite a force ready to go somewhere and all it required them to do in a sense was to actually quickly say right we're going but we might change where you're going to Uh, And why I say that is because, in fact, very few of the people on those ships traveling across actually knew where they were going. Um, You know, they knew it was towards Germany, but they had no idea where they were going. And in fact, there seems to be a genuine surprise. Uh, And I don't know how much even Wellesley, as in the future Duke of Wellington, knew because he was on the Prometheus and actually... Uh, the surgeon of prometheus leaves a diary that makes it very clear that even though he's on the ship with him he doesn't know until he's been in uh danish waters for about a week that in fact it's actually Dan- denmark they're going to have a go at uh so it is quite possible that even wellesley was not fully briefed on what was going to happen because it certainly wasn't being taught about round the mess table by the sounds of it um uh, so that's that's how we we end up with a something being put together quite quickly because something had already been planned, which they just re-diverted into a new direction. And obviously threw extra troops into it because they were the, the original uh numbers going were were, were actually sl- about half what that was, and they've actually managed to find some other troops to sort of send across as well.
1: Okay, Doke. And in terms of the intelligence that they've got, do they really know what they're getting themselves in for do they i mean obviously nelson's been there we'll like i say we'll do first copenhagen another day but Mm. is there because time passes um and especially if you've had an engagement in a location you can kind of bet your bottom dollar that both sides are going to learn from that and so with what six years by this point having passed yeah um there's there's plenty of scope for the danes to have strengthened defenses and all the rest of it do they know much about what they're going to face when they get there?
2: The answer is largely no. Um, they really haven't. You know, this has all come about so quickly that they, yes, okay, they they have a number of uh, sort of spies and diplomats in the area that were giving them information. But to be honest, the majority of the information they're getting is 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 incorrect. Um, they they're making the wrong conclusions and they're reporting th- rumors more than anything else. Um, so actually it's only when the navy get there they realize that in fact to, to to actually to attempt what nelson had done the first time was now literally impossible to do to actually take the, uh, the fleet very close to copenhagen with this additional uh defenses now was not was going to be a very painful experience you we say uh, and in fact the only way that realistically they could get to copenhagen this time round was to land a sizable force and take it from the land side because the naval the naval operation was not going to be able to break through
1: is that why there is such a significant naval contingent because they're hoping that you know you can use either or uh, We yeah we
2: in the early days happened. there is the thought of that there is also the, the the other thing is that you also obviously copenhagen is on the island of zealand Uh, and you want to actually separate zealand from the rest of holland germany and everything else so they can't get supplies they can't get reinforcements even that french army can't cross or whatever or even the, the the main danish army which is actually on the on the mainland so a large uh, force when they arrive under Admiral Keats gets sent off into the into that direction to to effectively make sure that the, the whole island, as, as much as humanly possible, is cut off uh, so that they can't get those reinforcements and resupplies. Um, so they do need it for that. They also obviously need a huge force because you're uh, having to take a, a large force of army personnel across which you obviously have to land, including cavalry, uh, who have to take their horses. Which is, you know, obviously something they try to do else elsewhere by, you know, sending the cavalry without horses and buy them. But on this occasion, they know that Zealand's not going to supply the number of horses they need, etc. So they have to take them with them. So you know, this so it's, it is a huge enterprise.
1: Okay, let's talk about names um, and and why these people in particular end up being picked um if you've read the sharp novel you'll see some mm. very colorful depictions i think at one point um bird turns around and snaps that cath cart is an old woman um mm. so before we get to the egos and the rivalries who are the people who are at the top of this and and why are they picked for this well
2: topic? admiral james gambier is actually picked um it's <sighs> why he is adm- as the admiral is not specifically clear i mean at the end of the day he's, he's available um he's got a reasonably good reputation um but he as far as the navy's concerned he is actually a, a, a bible thumping admiral which actually uh, is a thing that sailors hate yeah it, it, they don't go together at all um and in fact he was he was known in the case uh from a lot of sailors as, as things like dismal Jim, jimmy and all the rest of it um he he didn't have a great reputation he was also seen as being very um cautious in himself uh and i guess there probably was that sort of safe pair of hands thing coming on but certainly there were other admirals that could have been used and i as i say, i've not really come across a particular reason why he got chosen out of the crowd uh, it's a bit more obvious with regard to Cathcart for the army um, because he had already been sent to Stralsund with uh, all the king's German legion who were actually helping the king of Sweden try to keep Stralsund from uh, being falling to the French. Um, so you had a, a large German contingent in, the, in that area already with a senior officer who actually could take on the, the role in this place here, and obviously bring those troops across, uh, upsetting the, the king of Sweden in in the in the process. But however, uh, you know, needs must, and they were they were moved. Um, so you end up, and as you uh, you'd already mentioned with Sharp, I mean, basically Cathcart also arrives with this reputation of being a bit of a a warrior and a you know not great at making fast decisions and all the rest of it. So the, you know. They don't arrive the pair of them with the best of reputations, and i can i can I can reveal now they go home with even worse ones,
1: yes indeed um what about egos within all of this? I mean you've got a multi service operation here um rivalries can scupper operations like this how How well do these or don't these guys get on with each other
2: they They have problems, but they're not huge. Um, I mean, you know, you look at 1801, you've got um, Nelson and his senior officer um, having quite a big problem, should we say, at numerous occasions. Uh, Gambia and Cathcart on this occasion uh, do generally work together, um, but there is always, always that this inter- service rivalry which is which is always there uh i mean when i was in the navy it was you know it's, it's always there soldiers on ships are a pain in the neck and you want to get them off as fast as possible yeah uh and it's never changed um so obviously when they arrive there he wants to get the soldiers ashore but then when the actual operation of uh besieging copenhagen uh, is is formed uh Gambia quite quickly decides that they're they're moving way too slowly for, for his uh opinion, and he starts supplying uh sailors with guns and everything else ashore to actually move things along as far as he's concerned, to sort of push it along a bit faster. Um but I would say at the end of the day that both of them actually, however, recognize that this had to be quite a quick operation. Uh Even Cathcart, who is normally quite rightly has his reputation of being a bit of a plodder um, on this occasion, is actually, if anything, guilty of actually saying, no, I need to rush this through because he's permanently aware of both the French and the major Danish uh, armies just the other side of the water who could potentially get onto the island and then he'd have a bit of a problem uh and so therefore he he wants to move things on quite quickly um which is as i say is out of character for him so although the navy are saying you're going a bit too slow uh the army as far as they're concerned are almost running because at the end of the day uh cathcart's trying to push it along at, at its speed um but the actual p- uh, period in getting it ready for the the major bombardment is quite pro- prolonged, should we say?
1: And in terms of the plan, is this a capture or destroy or anything will go? Because there there's often this sort of suggestion of, well, look, there's prize money on the table here. Do you want to? You want the prize money? Of course, you want the prize money. But does that seem to have tainted the the way in which they go about the operations? Does anybody seriously? float the idea look we could just lob shells into the the relevant harbor is is it the inner harbor that the, the yeah up? yeah
2: um well the the problem is the main people that can actually lob the shells in is the navy and the navy can't get close enough okay. uh, because now the new defenses have stopped that happening um it could have happened in eighteen oh one. The defences weren't good enough then. But by eighteen oh seven, the naval defences are too strong. Uh, any any attempt at having sort of sh- uh, ships coming in and, and sort of lobbing shells in, they wouldn't have lasted long. Um, and also, it's, it's it's a bit of an imprecise science. The the Danes in eighteen oh one, they would do it again eighteen oh seven. Is you can cover the decks with earth. So that you, you know, the shells just land in them and just blow a bit of earth up and don't really damage the ships, uh, don't start fires, etc., because of that, etc. Um, and also they're very difficult to hit. If you're lobbing things up into the air and hoping to land on a, a smaller ship, um, uh, it's quite a t- quite a difficult thing to do. So, you know, realistically, the number of shells you'd have to fire to actually damage the fleet would be horrendous, it would be massive amount of firepower so they immediately think no we've got to be a bit more broad brush in this um you know the only thing you can do is you can uh you have to choose whether you um force the actual city to um surrender because it's actually running out of water and food etc cetera, etc cetera, or you bombard it into submission pretty quickly and the only way you can do that with shells and did I say it rockets they're available as well is to actually it's basically just lob them in and it hits what it hits whether it's whether it's uh a church it's uh, you know sort of a private dwelling or it's uh, a magazine you know the when we're not in the era of um sort of um sort of guided weapons of any sort yeah so it's it is pure luck what it hits so you have to just try to cause as much disruption as possible it's it's an it's an early form of blitzkrieg in a sense is trying to sort of and trying to get people uh, and sort of and trying to get people to their wills to be broken i think that's all it's about really because you want the population to actually turn against the army this sort of forcing them to get you know be fired on etc and being killed um so there is that attitude but not every i would say that not everyone initially went for this scenario uh there is one significant member of the team who actually was arguing against it which is arthur wellesley
1: okay well let's stay with that um fan favorite wellesley it will have pricked up a few ears um you've made the point that you know this is not the era of precision guided weaponry nobody's mounting a laser from you know the tops of insert ship name here, in order to call in an airstrike. Um, they're not even doing that during the Second World War, people. That's why you mm. get carpet bombing. Yeah. Um, there is there is very little precision hundred nearly 150 years later, so mm. it's not going to happen during this period. Even now, it's not perfect. Well, indeed. Um, the other thing I will say is that speaking to soldiers, they have a very similar view of the Navy, as the navy has of soldiers um, oh i'm just i'm
2: absolutely sure of it very little seems to
1: have changed in that regard in <laughs> uh in, well 200 years no um, not at all so so wellesley he's not up for it what's his alternative suggestions it's all very well kind of going i don't like this but you've got to have an, an alternative bright idea
2: yeah yeah well his, his view is that uh he agrees with the cutting off of Eddie's uh, sort of communication with uh, Copenhagen on the main island uh, of Zealand, uh, but that's as far as it goes for Cathcart. Um, he actually looks at you've got Amager on the other side of uh, Copenhagen, which he believes we they should actually land troops on there as well, and basically cut off the entire city from all directions. Um, and he felt that by doing that, uh, they would be able to effectively. Effectively starve the the city into submission in pretty short time. I mean, it would have been a long term, a longer term process, uh, and it's certainly true if you look even throughout the uh, the Peninsular War. Although, obviously, Wellington a number of times has to uh, fire on cities. He does try to generally avoid, uh, you know, sort of destroying the cities too much. He tries to go for the the actual armed parts of it that he actually wants to get rid of rather than uh just carpet bombing the place or whatever um but clearly obviously it's not that easy but he certainly was arguing for that uh the reason and you think maybe cathcart in normal circumstances would probably have gone for that but the reason the cathcart overrules that and very much with gambia's uh agreement is because they don't know how long they've got before all of those forces on the mainland get across. And there's this continuous worry of that. So it, as far as they're concerned, it needs to be a very brief operation that finishes it very quickly. And the only way they see to do that is to actually bombard the city and force, force the the governor of the place to actually a payment, uh, an engineer uh, to actually, concede basically and sort of then then allow the british in
1: does anyone consider the possibility of sort of conventional storm or is that just not possible with the defences they're facing and the numbers they've got they
2: they had yeah i mean the, the they they had effectively carried out siege works on the outside uh, on you know in 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 coming up to the, the edge of um, copenhagen but the actual defences of copenhagen were significant Um, seriously significant uh if you look at the number of guns and the fact you had a wet ditch plus you had the sort of ramparts behind them uh quite a a, a, still a respectable number of troops within there plus they'd have been you know supplied the naval navy would have been able to help them etc it would not have been an easy task it would have been very costly as well so i think on the other side of the coin they're probably also thinking we don't want to have five to ten thousand casualties in trying to take this place um and uh, whether they just succeeded or not i mean you know wellington had enough trouble taking places in spain and portugal but at the end of the day he didn't have wet ditches to deal with this which is an extra bit
1: this is very true um i'm going to keep these these questions coming apologies um, way off script by this point, but. <laughs> Uh um, the feeling is that would
2: go back to the whatever.
1: I mean, you've done this show before, you know how it works. Yeah, exactly.
2: You um, go where you like.
1: Of, I write a list of questions and I just go, I don't care about those. I've got I've got ideas in my head, people. Um so there we talked a lot about um the reasons why basically the the only option to an extent if you're going to actually achieve this is Mm -hmm. to go with this, what I tend to call a firebombing strategy. Yep. There is one other option, of course, which is to send an ultimatum and say, look, we're here. You 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 can either take the consequences or you can give us the fleet. I don't actually know off the top of my head if that was done. I would imagine it was, but I'm curious about how the Danes respond not only to this situation, but also any suggestions that, look, come on. You know what's going to this is silly just just stop this and give us what we want
2: yeah well there are a number of attempts with the uh prince regent because um, funny enough both countries have a prince regent at that stage with a uh with a, a king who is not in the best of health should we say in both cases um so the prince regent is i guess a number of sort of uh visits uh but gets the point that eventually that you know the, the fleet has arrived now and Copenhagen and his his fleet is definitely under threat now he immediately goes to Copenhagen uh and he it basically he abandons the the talks Etc and he orders a number of things for example payment is is ordered to actually defend it to the effectively to the death um the Stephen Bill who is now Admiral in charge of the Navy is actually told to scuttle it if the British actually do manage to take it um so that he was effectively already ordering them one to make it as costly as possible and two make it almost a pointless exercise because if the Brits had actually got in there and found them scuttled it would have taken him quite a considerable amount of time to get them back up. It's not impossible, but it's a huge task, um, and would have made it a lot more complicated. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, so that he promptly sort of ordered all of this to happen, and then stoutly, instead of standing on the sort of the rampart saying, "I'm with you. I will be here till the end," he then snuck off and disappeared, uh, so that he was out of out of danger and went back to his main army for the rest of the time. Uh and just sort of left it to Payman and Steen Bill to actually sort of uh keep it going as long as possible, but under no circumstances were they to surrender as far as he was concerned.
1: You just preempted what was going to be my next question, um, which was did he stick around and place himself in danger or did he run away? Um, and, and there we have the answer. He
2: he bravely ran away
1: how very very valiant of him Although um, he did
2: actually, he did actually help his father escape as well i suppose so this there's, there's some possible
1: okay um i'm not sure he's really redeeming himself <laughs> in, in that regard i'm trying to, i'm
2: trying to be nice to
1: him i mean if he'd left his ailing dad to die um i would have sat here and judged him i'm not going to lie um, <laughs> folks you're going to take one look at the that ta- the the, the, time tamp, the time stamp on this and realize exactly what i'm about to say next which is that's going to be it for part one of um, this episode. Yes, we're doing a two parter on second Copenhagen. Lord knows what we'll do for first Copenhagen. Um, are, you sure two,
2: are you sure it's only two? you sure it's only a two parter?
1: Well, we did three <laughs> parts on um, Derlon's division and attack at waterloo so it's entirely i did hear,
2: music. and unfortunately i haven't had a chance to listen to it yet so i promise you you're on my, the list of things for me to listen to at some stage i've just been so busy recently i haven't had time to do it but it, even even i was astounded that somebody managed to go for three three episodes so i will be listening out for that one intently
1: well there you go there there's there's a, an endorsement shall we say from from the god of Waterloo himself.
2: Um oh stop it please.
1: <laughs> hey, you've got the introduction to the second bar coming, my friend. Um before we get there though, the point is you have written is it just the one book on Copenhagen?
2: Apologies, uh, yes I should know this. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've just written the one book. It it's basically um it's called The Two Battles of Copenhagen, 1801 and 1807. Because they are linked and therefore I wanted it's the first book that's ever actually dealt with the two incidents together. Uh which I just never understand because they are completely interlinked.
1: It does rather make me doing second Copenhagen first a bit of a dumb move, but we'll, we'll address that in a future recording, um, possibly installment sort of 27 of the Copenhagen saga. Um, it's available <laughs> from Pen and Sword, I want to say.
2: Uh, that one is, I've got to remember myself, it is Pen and Sword, yes. Pen and sword. yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's. I'm afraid the hardback sold out and they're not redoing it at the moment. It's now in paperback only, I'm afraid.
1: Well, that's irritating. Folks, um, try this. Podcast 10 may get you 10% off. I'm not sure if the code is still active, Um, but if not, then pay full price for the paperback because it will be worth it. It's a Gareth book. Um, They're always worth it. Gareth, you're also on Twitter at... um, I can't remember your Twitter handle. Glover Gareth. There you go. Um, So folks, go and give Gareth a follow because for the moment, at least, Twitter is still vaguely alive, even if it is in its death throes. We'll wait and see on that one. Um, Gareth, absolute joy uh, to talk to you for part one. We'll I'm going continue with part two very shortly. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for 1 million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout-outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair campbell Grieve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, An Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich DeCardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Bretto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn, And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, JC Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walkham, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. <music>